This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. Fascinating, but quite impossible. What you are about to see is bizarre, unsettling, and riveting. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime, and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Last time, we were talking about conspiracies and true lies and cover-ups and all the good stuff like that. This week, it's partly conspiracies and partly supernatural and partly weird stuff that we don't know the truth about, and it's also inspired by what we've talked about in Twitch chat. We've talked about UFOs before, and we've talked about all of the supernatural things that we are either allegedly exposed to or actually exposed to, depending on your view of things. And I've always believed this stuff. I really have. From when I was a kid, I started buying into a lot of this stuff. Now, is it true? Is it not? I'm not one to really rely on cover-ups necessarily or giant conspiracies designed to keep us from the truth. Although the more I see, the more I tend to lean in that direction. Let's say I have a healthy skepticism when the powers that be tell me, well, that's not true, or, oh, well, that is true. I like to know for myself, and I like to form my own opinions based on the facts that are out there. The problem is with things like UFOs, ghosts, spirits, the Bermuda Triangle, We don't know all of the facts. We don't have facts. And that's why things like this are ripe for speculation. And I'm happy to speculate. Now, my interest in this stuff started back when I was a kid. And I mentioned this book in the stream. And I was surprised that a lot of people hadn't heard of the book Chariots of the Gods. Now, Chariots of the Gods came out in the late 60s, early 70s, somewhere in that range. It had long been out by the time I got around to reading it. But it was one of the early nonfiction books that I remember reading, and it fascinated me. A guy named Eric Von Daniken wrote the book, and it had as the basis for its premise the hypotheses that extraterrestrial beings influenced ancient technology. And because their powers and their intellect and their abilities were so superior to ancient humans, they were perceived as gods. And the theory was that these advanced civilizations gave their advanced knowledge to the ancient humans and allowed them to build things, or know things, or construct things, or achieve things that they wouldn't otherwise ordinarily be able to do. And he talks about a lot of things in his book, and I remember a lot of the things that he talked about. I don't remember all of the things that he talked about, but I remember he talks about, for instance, Ezekiel's vision of angels that were mentioned in the Bible as being examples of descriptions of astronauts in space. He equated the destruction of Sodom in fire and brimstone as the equivalent of a nuclear explosion. He called the Ark of the Covenant a communication device with an alien race, as opposed to something that God gave down to Moses to protect the commandments. And he had theories for all of this backed up by his research, or if you believe some of the naysayers, the research he stole. And yeah, of course, Von Daniken has been attacked by academics and biblical scholars and a lot of his theories questioned and he's been accused of plagiarism and just making stuff up. But that's the interesting thing about this. These are theories that nobody can rebut with facts because we weren't there. This isn't something that's happening today where we have scientific evidence. This is interpreting stuff 
that happened before, and we weren't there, so we don't know. This is one man's interpretation of what he's seen, based on his research. Can some of it be rebutted? Of course. Can all of it? No. He also talks about the pyramids and how they were far beyond the capabilities of the people at the time. He talks about those statues on Easter Island. Have you ever heard of Easter Island? Easter Island was big for me when I was a kid, but a lot of people may not know Easter Island. Go look it up. They have these giant heads, just heads, on this island in the Pacific. And for decades after they were discovered, nobody knew what they were there for. Nobody knew how they got there, and nobody knew why they were there. And for the most part, that's still the case. So why are there these heads on this obscure little island in the middle of the Pacific? How did they get there? What do they mean? Von Daniken also talks about Stonehenge. Now, Stonehenge is one of those things that has stuck in my head forever, and I'm always aware of it. Stonehenge is in England, and it's those giant rocks with rocks across the top of them, and people have always wondered where they came from. But there's a lot of questions about Stonehenge. I mean, the rocks are huge, and they're not local. From all of the information they have available, the stones for Stonehenge came from as far away as 140 miles, and those stones weigh up to 25 tons. Now, they say it was built between four and 5,000 years ago. How do ancient people move 25-ton rocks 140 miles? It's not like they had cranes and trucks and railways. They didn't have means to lift them. They didn't have means to transport them that we know about. Were there ancient mechanisms in place that have been lost over time? Was there some advanced civilization that moved the rocks for them? Nobody knows. Then there's a thing called the Piri Rees map. I'll spell that for you so you can go look it up because this is fascinating to me. It's Piri Rees, P-I-R-I-R-E-I-S. Two words, Piri Rees map. It's a map from 1513. It's a map that was written on a gazelle skin. It was made by a known cartographer back in the 1500s. The mystery of it is it shows the coast of South America and Antarctica 300 years before Antarctica was discovered. In fact, Von Daniken's theory was the only way they could have done the Piri Rees map is if they had aerial views of the world. And back in 1513, nobody had aerial views of the world. Not sufficient enough to give them the ability to do a map which is accurate. Cartographers have checked it. The coastline is exactly the way it's supposed to be. The interior of South America is exactly the way it's supposed to be. So how did they get Antarctica into the Piri Rees map before anybody discovered it? So the book Chariots of the Gods has all of these, to me, when I was in my young teens, these mind-boggling theories about maybe the stuff we think we know isn't the truth. And I started looking at things a little more critically as a result of that. Well, maybe this is the case. But I read that book twice. Because I wanted to get that stuff into my head. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to try to come up with my own reasoning for why one guy would say it's this and one guy would say it's that. It was fascinating to me. But I didn't stop there. Once I saw there was a whole world out there that nobody knew the answers to, that there weren't ready answers to every question, I started looking around. And that's when I found UFOs. Oh, I was all over UFOs when I was a kid. I loved all of the UFO stories. Now, we all know about Roswell. Roswell happened in 1947. Just in case you don't, back in July of 1947, near Roswell, New Mexico, there was a severe thunderstorm, and there was something that happened. And that something is still subject to question today. What was the something? 
Well, if you dig back into the stories, there was a rancher who found debris on his ranch that was collected by the military and taken to Roswell. One of the early press releases at that time that was issued by a guy named Walter Hout, he was a lieutenant, H-A-U-T, you can look it up, basically said we have a flying saucer in our possession. That initial press release was retracted and substituted with statements from an army general, Roger Ramey, that said that it was a weather balloon. Something crashed in that thunderstorm. Weather balloon, flying saucer, the recovery of debris of some kind. That's where Roswell started, and that's where the mystery is, because there are disputes. Witnesses have come forward on both sides, and nobody knows for sure what happened at Roswell. But see, for me, the Roswell story is not the story that started my UFO interest. There was another story in 1947, and I don't remember where I read this. I was taking out books from the library on anything that was related to UFOs and the supernatural and weird stuff like that. And I remember reading in one of the UFO books about a pilot in Washington State who was flying near Mount Rainier. Now, this is in June of 1947, before the Roswell incident. He radioed in that he saw several glowing bright blue objects flying in a V formation over Mount Rainier. Now, his estimate of their speed was 1,700 miles an hour, and he described them as like a saucer if you skip it across water, which is where the term flying saucer comes from. Now, the pilot, when he initially talked about it, thought it was some kind of a test flight of a military aircraft, but the military said they weren't conducting test flights in the area at the time. Now, the pilot wasn't the only one to report this. There was a prospector in the mountains who saw objects in the sky at about the same time as the pilot did. And it was after that report that was picked up and reported across the country that all other kinds of UFO reports started to surface. By the way, there's never been a satisfactory explanation of what this guy saw over Mount Rainier. All we know is he saw several glowing bright blue objects in a V formation flying over Mount Rainier. The guy's name is Kenneth Arnold. You can look him up and you can look up the report. Now, after 1947 and all of the reports that started coming in about these UFOs, the Air Force created what became to be known as Project Blue Book, and it was charged with investigating all of the UFO sightings or related incidents that had something to do with unidentified flying objects. Now, according to information that's been released, over 12,000 sightings or related events were reported over the next 15 to 20 years. Now, here's the thing that makes me think. Of those, more than 90% were eventually classified as identified, which meant that they were caused by something that we knew, some atmospheric event, some man-made phenomenon. But what that means is also 10% were unidentified. They weren't able to explain it away. They weren't able to tell people what it really was in those 10% of the cases. So what does that mean? I don't know. I'm just mentioning it for your own edification. So yeah, when I was a kid, I read up on all of these UFO things. I loved the UFO stuff. But of course, my interest didn't stop at UFOs. I kept digging. I found other stuff that also interested me. The UFOs led me to the Bermuda Triangle. Of course it did. Now, if you don't know, the Bermuda Triangle is one of those areas of the Atlantic Ocean where ships and planes were supposedly disappearing at a higher rate than any other area of the oceans in the world. Is it really a triangle? Hmm. It's triangular-ish, for lack of a better term. It goes from the Caribbean Sea up to Bermuda, 
then down to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and then back over to the Caribbean. It's triangular-ish. But it's the source of a lot of mysteries that to this day are unexplained. Now, some say the disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle are not any greater than mysterious disappearances anywhere else in the world. I guess that's one of those where there are statistics to back up the numbers that they're giving you. But as I've said before, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. So you always have to consider the source of the statistics. But here's what brought me into the Bermuda Triangle. It's called Flight 19. Flight 19 was a squadron of torpedo bombers that disappeared in December of 1945. They took off from Florida. They were supposed to fly out over the ocean and do a giant lap to complete a training exercise. The problem is the flight never returned to base. Now, there are articles out there that talk about Flight 19 and what happened. One of the things that I read about the flight was what the flight leader said in his radio as he was trying to radio in what was happening to the flight. He said, we are entering white water. Nothing seems right. We don't know where we are. The water is green, no white. And then the flights just disappeared. All of the planes in the squadron just disappeared. Gone. The Navy sent out a search plane after that, a search and rescue aircraft. I remember it. It was a big plane. I remember seeing pictures of it. I've looked it up. It's called a PBM Mariner. It had a 13-man crew. The plane sent to look for the missing squadron also disappeared. So Flight 19 disappeared, and the rescue plane sent to look for them disappeared. There was no debris, no bodies, no rafts. There was nothing found anywhere from Flight 19 or the Mariner that went looking for them. In later years, a report came in that a tanker off the coast of Florida reported seeing an explosion after the Mariner took off to look for Flight 19 and saw supposedly a widespread oil slick, but no plane debris, no bodies, no anything. Now, afterwards, the investigation said that the Mariner had a history of explosions due to vapor leaks. So perhaps the Mariner exploded, but they didn't say anything about what happened to Flight 19, the squadron that disappeared. And nobody's ever been able to explain why there's no bodies, no plane parts, no life rafts, no anything as a result of these disappearances. Oh, that sucked me in. The Bermuda Triangle was a thing. That freaked me out when I was young. Holy cats, stuff disappears in the Bermuda Triangle. We're never going there. But I had to read more. I had to find out more. So I read all kinds of stuff about the Bermuda Triangle. I found a whole bunch of planes disappeared back in the 1940s. The Star Tiger and the Star Ariel disappeared on January 30th, 1948. They were flying from the Azores to Bermuda. Another plane back in 1948 disappeared on a flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami. No trace of the aircraft or the 32 people on board was ever found. Again, no bodies, no debris, no nothing. It just disappeared. And I found out it wasn't just planes that were disappearing. Ships were disappearing too. The USS Cyclops was a Navy ship that disappeared and resulted in the largest loss of life in the history of the Navy that wasn't related to combat. It went missing without a trace back in 1918, had a crew of over 300 people, no bodies, no pieces of the ship, no life rafts, nothing was ever found of the Cyclops. Now, years later, two ships similar to the Cyclops also disappeared in the North Atlantic during World War II. And some people say it was a design flaw of that type of ship. And maybe it was. But if a design flaw caused the Cyclops to sink in 1918, not a single survivor, not a single life raft, not a single anything. 
So, of course, as you might expect, these missing ship stories got me thinking about, oh, geez, that could happen too. And, of course, I started tracing missing ships and derelict ships, and that led me to the ghost ships. There are stories about ghost ships that go back decades. Ghost ships are those that they find where the crew is gone or the crew is dead or something tragic has happened to the boat. And a lot of these are attributed to the fact that sailors are superstitious. But when I was young, boy, I was sucking up these stories like they were water. Oh, they fascinated me. One of the ghost ship stories I remember is the SS Orang Medan. Goes back to 1947. Something about 1947, right? Bad year for UFOs and ghost ships. Now, I looked this up to make sure that I'd get the language right for you, because this is the stuff that made my skin crawl when I was a kid. This is the way the story goes. The Medan was a cargo ship off the coast of Indonesia, and it put out a distress call that said, All officers, including captain, are dead, lying in chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead. Before help could arrive, a second message was radioed in with just two words. I die. Oh, when I read that, I was scared. And I had to keep reading. And of course, rescue workers arrive at the ship. And of course, the crew's dead. They found all the crew members dead on this ship. Their bodies were all bent out of shape. And some of them looked like they were fighting off attackers. But there was no sign of injury. And while they're in the process of trying to get the bodies off the ship, the engine room caught fire. They had to abandon the ship. And the ship sank. Now, there was a subsequent report that said, well, they were carrying sulfuric acid on that ship, which caused the crew to die. But since the ship sank, and no autopsies could be done on any of the bodies, we'll never know. That's the stuff that freaks me out. And from there, of course, I found the Mary Celeste. If you know anything about the supernatural and ghost ships and abandoned ships and derelict ships, you've heard of the Mary Celeste. If you haven't, go look it up, man. It's another one of those weird stories. In fact, it was the subject of a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, the Sherlock Holmes guy. He wrote a short story about the Mary Celeste. It was one of those stories that captured the fancy of people at the time. I looked up the date so I'd get them right for you. On November 7th, 1872, the Mary Celeste left New York, bound for Genoa, with a cargo of alcohol. Aboard was Captain Briggs, his wife, his child, and a crew of seven. About a month after she departed, the Mary Celeste was spotted drifting somewhere between the Azores and Portugal. And when I say drifting, I mean drifting. That means no one on it. A ship called the Dea Gracia found the Mary Celeste, sent a crew to check it out. They found the ship in perfect condition. Totally seaworthy. Absolutely fine. Just no people anywhere. In fact, everything on the Mary Celeste was in perfect order. And even the crew's clothes, right where they were supposed to be. But not a single person found. They did find a disassembled pump in the hold, and they found one of the lifeboats missing. There was still food and water on the ship. The ship had no leaks. So why was the ship abandoned? What happened to the people? Why would they leave a ship, especially a captain with his wife and kid? That was the thing that got me when I was young. The captain and his wife and kid were on the ship, and they left it. No one knows. No one knows for sure what happened to the Mary Celeste. You can dig into it if you want to. You'll never find a satisfactory explanation for what happened to the Mary Celeste. And that's the kind of stuff that I loved as a kid. Oh, I was digging into this stuff. I love this stuff. And it still fascinates me to this day. 
That, of course, is not the only stuff that fascinates me about the supernatural, if you consider this stuff supernatural. But I do believe in the supernatural a little bit. I love the British and Scottish folklore, for instance, that talk about fairies and spirits. I've read up on this stuff, too. British folklore talks about not passing by a marsh on a misty evening. Otherwise, you'll risk encountering Jenny Greenteeth. She's supposedly a sharp-toothed old woman who pulls unwary wanderers into the depths and devours them. In fact, fairies and spirits are big all over England. You don't walk across certain hills at night because you don't want to agitate the spirits, whether you call them fairies or spirits or whatever you call them. You stay away from certain places at night because you don't want to disturb the fairies. But you know what? There are certain places that I don't want to walk at night, not because it's a dangerous place, but because there's something about the atmosphere. The woods are too dark. They're too quiet. They're something. Are they woodland sprites? Are they fairy spirits? What are they? There's something that gives you a feeling of not going to a certain place or leaving somebody by themselves or going someplace on your own. There's something that gives you that feeling. And I believe in that feeling. So I kind of listen to it. And yes, before you ask, I have a thing about ghosts. Do they exist? Oh, maybe we'll do an episode about ghosts too. By the way, if you've never done it, go look for the ghost videos on YouTube. Oh, that'll freak you out. Some of them, oh, you'll believe. Trust me, you'll believe. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Storytime. Thanks so much for being here. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen to my silly little stories about spirits and the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and ancient aliens influencing humankind. You take care of yourselves. (laughs) And I will see you when I see you.